This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hi there, Dr. Jen Lincoln here. I can't come to the phone right now, but we'll likely have an opening later on. Please leave me a message and I'll be at your cervix. I mean, <laughs> service in no time. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Let's Talk About Down There podcast, episode 25. I'm your host, board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. And this week's episode is all about early pregnancy. It's what I'm calling the, you found out you're pregnant, now what? edition. (laughs) I'm not sure if that will actually be the eventual title, but I don't know. I thought it was pretty good. I will say before I jump into this, I do have a content warning, and that is that I will be discussing miscarriage. So if that is a topic you are not wanting to listen to, I hear you. And you can go ahead and skip this week's podcast. So this week, I'm answering a bunch of questions. And they're all from one person who I do not know personally, but we have interacted a few times on Instagram. And I think she's awesome. And she had just disclosed to me that she just found out she was pregnant. And so when she saw my story that I put out, my little call to action for questions for this podcast, she understood the assignment. And she had her list and she called it and listed off a bunch of her questions. And this week I am featuring a handful of them. And so what we'll do is we'll play her question, I'll answer it and we'll go to the next one. And the good news is that these are some fantastic questions that if you just found out you're pregnant or maybe you're in your first trimester or maybe you're thinking about trying to conceive, these questions are just for you. So let's jump in. How is early pregnancy supposed to feel? This is a fantastic question. And we're going to start off with this because it can start off with, am I even pregnant? Like, what will I know? What's it going to feel like if I'm pregnant? And the answer to this one is that it can really vary. So some people have no idea they're pregnant until they've missed their period or they've missed more than one period or, you know, they finally take a pregnancy test and they go, oh my goodness, I'm pregnant. And then they go get an ultrasound and they're actually already like three months or 12 weeks pregnant. And they're like, I had no idea. Everything, you know, I felt the same. And for other people, it's totally the opposite. One of the most common first symptoms where somebody suspects they're pregnant is breast tenderness. This was actually the case for me. I remember I was a chief resident, which means I was in my final year of my OBGYN residency. And I was on labor and delivery working a shift during the day. And I had my scrubs on and in my top left scrub pocket, I had a pen and I, you know, that's where I would take my pen and put it in, put it out. And I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, why is it every single time I touch my boob? Like I swipe it as I'm taking my pen out. Like, why does it hurt so bad? And not just like, oh, you know, I'm about to get my period kind of bad. You know, we were trying to conceive at this time and I went, oh my gosh, maybe I'm pregnant. And of course, you know, went home and took a pregnancy test and I was in fact pregnant. So breast tenderness can be one of the first signs that some people have. For others, it's extreme fatigue. And whether or not you, you know, it's your first sign of pregnancy or you just experience it in the first trimester, that fatigue can be no joke. I tell people it's like having the flu. Maybe I should update it. Like having COVID and you just, you just the thought of getting off the couch, like, no. And it's really annoying because you have nothing to show for it physically, right? Like at least when you're in the third trimester, you've got this big belly and you're like, well, obviously that's why I feel tired. It can feel like literally you're like, how is this little embryo implanting into the wall of my uterus making me feel this tired? And yeah, it really can. It takes a lot of work to grow another entire, you know, fetus situation, especially in the beginning. And so 
Fatigue can be the first way that you feel. For others, it's nausea and aversions to smells or foods. And just that like, oh, I cannot be in the room while you're cooking this. Whereas previously a week before that wasn't an issue. Another common symptom people can have, even in the beginning, is sort of like this feeling of pelvic heaviness. And this was a symptom I remember describing to my OBGYN at like one of my first visits. She's like, how are you feeling? And I was like, I don't know. It just feels like like heavier in there, you know, even though my uterus was not significantly bigger at that time. So you might experience one of these, all of these, none of these, and they're all totally normal. So how is early pregnancy supposed to feel? Well, varies for everybody. But if you feel that it's, you're so fatigued, like you're not doing well, or you can't eat at all, or you know, do not hesitate to reach out, but also know that having none of these symptoms can be perfectly normal too. Will I have morning sickness? Should I worry if I don't? Okay, let's first, before we answer this, morning sickness, right? Like stupid name, because if you've suffered from this, you know, it does not just happen in the morning. It can happen in the morning and in the afternoon, in the evening, the middle of the night, during the day, when you're at work, when you're cooking dinner, when you're trying to get all your stuff done, it can happen anytime. And in general, you know, we used to call it morning sickness because it, it could be worse in the morning when your stomach was empty. So this idea that having an emptier stomach, it could make it worse. So having little snacks, little things that you can keep in, try and keep crackers at your bedside so you don't really have truly an empty stomach could help, but totally not an accurate term. The more accurate term is nausea and pregnancy, which is what it is. It's your nauseous and pregnancy. 50 to 80% of pregnant people will experience nausea and pregnancy. And of those that are going to have it, the vast majority of it happens before nine weeks. So really in that early first trimester. This means that if you've made it up to week nine and you've done pretty good, the chances are high that you're going to do okay in this pregnancy without any nausea. But again, it's never 100%. So 50 to 80% of pregnant people will be nauseous in pregnancy. About 50% of people will throw up in pregnancy. And then there's the beast known as hyperemesis gravidarum. And if you've not heard of that term before, that is, think of it as like extreme nausea and vomiting. So this is sometimes a situation that people end up in the hospital because of it, because they are not able to keep anything down. They get severely dehydrated. Their blood pressure gets low because they're low on fluids and they need to come into the hospital to get IV fluids to hydrate them, medicine to help with their nausea, and then sometimes extra things like potassium or other electrolytes or nutrients because they're just not able to get them by mouth. This can affect up to 3% of pregnant women and people with a uterus. So thankfully not super common, but for people who have it, it sucks and it feels like, you know, the worst thing that you can get, especially early in pregnancy. So why do you have nausea and vomiting in pregnancy? Or why are you predisposed to having hyperemesis gravidarum? Really, we're unsure. And it could be a combination of things. The first being hormones. There are two specific hormones. First, estrogen as well as HCG, which is the pregnancy hormone. That's when you pee on a stick. That's what makes it turn positive. That's made by the placenta. Both of these levels peak in that first trimester when these symptoms tend to peak as well. So we think maybe it's related to that, but we're not totally sure. Another reason could be evolution. So it's actually protective to not going out there and feeling okay and eating a bunch of different foods. The thought is, is that this kept you alive from eating things that might be poisonous, which I think is really cool. Now, this is a cool fact, but I don't want you to hear it and then normalize feeling totally crappy and then not getting treatment because of it. Like it's the modern day nature. We have medicines. Also family history. So if your mother or your sister had, especially hyperemesis gravidarum, there's a higher chance that you will. And lastly, and I think most interestingly, 
is that nausea and hyperemesis happen more commonly when you are carrying a female fetus. And maybe it's related to their hormones as well, but we're not totally sure. And then lastly, there can be what has been proposed potentially a psychiatric psychological component in that some people are predisposed to nausea, vomiting. There may be an emotional component. I don't love this idea because it makes it sound like people are faking or pretending their symptoms. And I think in women's healthcare, we already have enough of that going on. Um, I have another podcast episode where I talked about the origin of the word hysterical and hysterectomy with the base of that word hyster. And so that having to do with our uterus and then the idea that because we had a uterus that somehow made us crazy and how to this day, women and people with a uterus, when we have physical complaints, we are more often labeled with psychiatric complaints than if a man were to complain of the same thing. So I don't love that last reason. So your original question was, will I have morning sickness? Yeah, I mean, there's a high chance you're going to be nauseous at some point, but the good news is the really bad kind, that hyperemesis, um, is not so common. But should you worry if you don't? No, you should not. And there's definitely, you know, an old wives' tale or a myth that that has been out there that it's good to have morning sickness because it means that you're having a healthy pregnancy and your baby's growing. And I can see why you might think that because of the, the hormone levels going up. I also think that is an oversimplification of things. And that actually brings us into our class is in session this week, where we talk about the things that I'm pretty sure you didn't get in your health class in high school. So this week's class is about the old wise tale of pregnancy. So we're just going to talk about a whole bunch of different old wives tales. Keep in mind, if you've heard of these before, or if you've got other ones that you've heard of and let me know. The first one being just what I talked about. So the fact that hyperemesis gravidarum and nausea and vomiting means that you are having a girl. Um, there may be a slight association with it, but I don't want you to think just because you puked in the toilet bowl this morning, yep, you've got a girl fetus inside you. It's not, uh, it's not that clear cut. And there are a lot of these old wives tales that are really related to the sex of your baby, whether it's a boy or a girl. And I think that makes sense because it's only been recently, really, in the past couple decades where we've had the ultrasound technology to know what a baby's sex was um, before they were born. So I could see why you would want to try to figure it out. And I mean, you've got a 50-50 chance either way. So I could see how some of these myths might take hold. And, and honestly, like if you're at a baby shower and you're playing these games or, you know, somebody wants to guess and have fun, like they're harmless. But if you're literally deciding the name of your baby and, and you're like totally hanging your hat on whether or not you're having a boy or a girl based on some of these myths, like, yeah, there's no data. All right, so the first one has to do with heart rate. So there's the myth that if your baby's heart rate is over 140, it's a girl. And if it's under 140, it's a boy. True or false? Yeah, it's totally false. And I don't know where this one came from. Uh, the next one has to do with how you carry your baby. So if you're carrying very low, it's a boy. And if you're carrying higher, it's a girl. Also completely false. Also, please refrain from describing or discussing how anyone is carrying their baby. I remember... And I was with a group of doctors. We were out at like a social event and I was pregnant at the time with my second. And one of these women, she said, oh yeah, your baby hasn't dropped yet. You still got a while to go. And I wanted to punch her in the throat because I was like, first of all, I'm an OBGYN. Please don't tell me when my baby is coming. Second of all, I'm dying and I need this baby out. And you saying that to me, even though I don't believe you, makes me want to cry. And third of all, like we just don't need our bodies commented on. And you can show sooner and your baby may what appears to be a little bit lower 
earlier on in second and third and fourth pregnancies, just based on the anatomy of what happens with your muscles as they stretch out with subsequent pregnancies. But yeah, nobody, nobody needs their body commented on. Okay, this is like a really weird one. I can't believe that people are doing this. So here's an old wives tale that if you mix your urine with Drano, like the drain cleaner, if it turns pink, it's a girl. And if it turns blue, you're having a boy. Not true. Also, I just like pregnant people, please be careful when you're handling chemicals in a bathroom. You can be a lot more sensitive to fumes when you're pregnant. And third, like, do we really think that there's like a cleaning solution that also like is in line with the gender norms of pink being a girl color and blue being a boy color? Like, this is a weird one. This is a weird one. And uh, I mean, it's great if you want to clean your toilet, but there's no need to do this. Okay, next old wives tale. Tie your wedding ring. I don't know why it has to be a wedding ring. I guess we're just assuming that if you're pregnant, you're married, because otherwise you're just a dirty little hussy, aren't you? Tie your wedding ring to a piece of string and hang it over your belly. I don't know. If it swings in a circle, it's a boy. And if it goes back and forth, it's a girl. I guess somehow they're like emanating magnetic fields out of your belly button. I don't know. Yeah, false. Okay, next one has to do with cravings. If you're craving sweet things, it's a girl. If it's salty, it's a boy. We hate more gender stereotypes when it comes to foods, yeah, or anything else, it's false. These, these are some interesting ones that have nothing to do with gender or sex. Taking a bath can drown your baby. How, okay, so the fact that this is even out there concerns me so much as an obstetrician because this tells me that we have once again failed when it comes to sex education and health education because how do people not know that you're fetus, your baby is literally floating in a bag of water in amniotic fluid. So how would you getting into a bathtub drown your baby? Like that makes no sense. And it's not true. So yeah, please enjoy your baths. Don't get into hot tubs. And I know a lot of people who have been incorrectly told that they can't take a bath when they're pregnant. And that's just cruel and unusual because baths are awesome, especially if you've got back pain or aches in pregnancy. Just make sure that it's not hotter than your body temperature and get out if you start to feel hot. And please don't worry about drowning your baby, okay? All right, here's our last last old wives tale, which is that you can't get pregnant while you're nursing. This is actually false. And it is true that you can use nursing as a form of birth control if you meet all the criteria. It's called lactational amenorrhea. It means that you've got no periods. You are nursing, you're not supplementing. Your baby's less than six months old. Your baby's not taking any complimentary foods. It's, you know, you can use it as a form of birth control. It can be really effective if you follow all the things and it's not so effective for the majority of people because, you know, you're not supposed to go more than a couple hours between feeds and so, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, you can absolutely get pregnant while you're, while you're nursing. And so if you want to protect your milk, um, because getting pregnant is actually one of the best ways to decrease your milk supply. And if you don't want to do that, then you don't want to get pregnant. So talk to your healthcare provider um, about birth control after your baby arrives. All right, that wraps up all of our old wives' tales, and there were many more out there, but I thought that was enough for uh, for this week's class is in session, so class dismissed. When is it safe to publicly announce my pregnancy? Okay, I'm, I'm really glad you asked this question because a lot of people think about this, and I think that it just shows how in society we really think that we can't say certain things until a certain point because we're worried about what could happen. And so... The reason you're asking this question, and I've had people ask me this before, is because they're afraid if they announce their pregnancy too early and then they miscarry, that they'll have to explain it to people and it'll be really uncomfortable and that they are, you know, society has made them feel that they should wait until 
X number of weeks until it's considered like socially acceptable to disclose your pregnancy. And the real answer here is that you can announce your pregnancy whenever the heck you want, okay? Meaning that there are some people who the second they get that positive test and they pee on it and they see those two lines, they're like Instagramming it. And if that's what they want to do, that's fine. And then there's other people who I feel like they're practically crowning before they tell people that they're pregnant. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, okay, clearly you're pregnant, but you haven't said anything. So I'm not going to say anything. And it's honestly, it's like whatever works for you. Now, if what you're really asking me is, Dr. Jen, when is it safe to say it? Because I'm worried about miscarriage and I don't want to say something if my miscarriage rate is really high, then we should talk about that. And it's important to know that one in four confirmed pregnancies do end in miscarriage. So that is really common. So even if you announce your pregnancy and you do unfortunately have a miscarriage, I want you to know that you are far from alone and that this exact mentality that we've been handed, which is don't say anything until you're sure you're not going to miscarry, is one of the reasons we don't realize how common miscarriage is because we as a society have made it seem like it's not okay to talk about, like it's somehow not polite or we don't want to make other people feel bad. And I think that that's changing. I think a lot more people are sharing their stories, especially celebrities. And, you know, that helps to normalize it amongst us regular people. But I think it's really sad that people feel that they have to somehow like figure out how to disclose something like a pregnancy because they don't want to impose on people or they're worried that they feel like they're going to have to talk about this. And I just think that's really sad. So again, one in four pregnancies that are confirmed, meaning you've had a positive test, do end in miscarriage. And 80% of those happen in the first trimester, which is less than 12 weeks. So it is true that once you hit that 12-week mark, that your risk drops significantly. And that's a lot of the time that people have, you know, told that you have to wait three months before you tell anybody because of that. But it doesn't mean that it's 100%. So you still could have a pregnancy loss after that. And truly age is a big factor. So it's thinking about that as well, because we know that if you're less than 30, your miscarriage rate is less than 10%. But if you're over 40, that risk really increases up to 75%. And so it's important to know that, that age is a big factor as well. And that may impact, depending how old you are, when you do want to tell people if you not wanting to talk about miscarriage with people is something of a concern for you. And it's also important to note that once you see um, or able to hear fetal heart tones, so cardiac activity, once you're able to confirm that, the risk is very low as well for a pregnancy loss, less than 5%. So really my answer is tell people whenever you want. And know that if you tell people early and you miscarry and you think that you would like that support and you don't mind discussing it, and in fact, you would draw strength from your friends and family knowing, then you tell them whenever you want. And if you want to wait until that 20-week anatomy ultrasound because you're just really stressed out and you're worried that something might be wrong or it just doesn't feel like it's anybody else's news quite yet that you want to share, then you wait and you do you. And if people try to make comments, well, then just tell them Dr. Jen said to shut up. Actually, I'd be totally fine with that. (laughs) Okay, next question. How do I choose the right OB for me? Okay, I love that question because I think the answer really is different strokes for different folks. And I think it's important to first realize that there's different types of obstetric providers. There's not just OBGYNs. Of course, I love OBGYNs. I am one. But I also love the other kinds of people who can do prenatal care and also deliver babies. So there's family doctors or family physicians. Some of them do obstetrics. There's certified nurse midwives. So these are nurses who have had standardized training and are certified. They often will do hospital births, but sometimes they do birth center births or home births. And then there's what I'm going to call the category of community midwives. So these can have lots of different terms like certified midwife, certified professional midwife, community midwife, home birth midwife. And these are a lot of different names. 
and the training can be really variable. So if you're looking into one of those particular providers, it's really important to dive into how much experience they have and what their training has been. And that's really beyond the scope of this particular question and podcast. So if you do have questions though about home births and you want to dive into more of that, I've got an episode, go ahead and listen to that. But what I'm going to talk about right now is how do you choose a provider for you in a hospital birth, since that is where the vast majority of births happen. And I'll just run through a quick list. First being, yeah, you better check that insurance because unfortunately we're in America and everything's really expensive here. So check your insurance, see if there's somebody you're thinking of, if they take your insurance. The second thing you might want to think about is, does having a male or female provider matter to you? Now, I'm a female. I had female OBGYNs for the birth of my two kids. And I will tell you, however, that I also worked with and trained with and continue to work with a ton of great male OBGYNs. For me personally, if I had found one who I felt was the person I wanted to deliver my baby, it wouldn't have mattered to me if they were male or female. But I also understand that that's not the case for everybody. So whatever you decide, just know that it's okay to have a preference and that you should also then think about what's the situation with their practice. So are they in a solo practice and it's always just them or are they in a group practice? And so you might see some other partners during your prenatal care or even during the birth of your baby. And if some of them are male, are you okay with that? So just important to to know about that. You also want to think about the ease of scheduling. Is it that every time you call, you're on hold for an hour? Or is it relatively painless? Or you can just log on and make all your appointments on your phone or on the computer, which is way easier. Yes, that's what I like to do. In fact, if I can't schedule something online, I don't even want to think about it. You know, basically, does that matter to you? It can be helpful. Also, what about after hours coverage? What's their practice? Do they have nurses that take triage calls and then will route you over to the doctor or the midwife who's on call? Or do you call labor and delivery? How does that work? And hopefully you never need them, right? Because that's usually for emergency questions or things that you're worried about. And hopefully you never need that, but you want to be prepared just in case. Then you want to know like, who's going to be there to potentially deliver your baby? What's the model in their practice? Um, If you have an OBGYN, do they also have a group of midwives? And is it that the midwives manage the labor in the hospital if everything's low risk and no issues? Or is it a group practice? Is it that you will always see your doctor and they'll come in for the birth? Or is it whoever's on call in the hospital? I think it's important. I don't think one is better than the other. I just think it's important to know so that you have appropriate expectations and you're not surprised when you come in to have your baby. You can also ask if there are going to be residents or med students involved. And I do want to say that I actually think when residents and medical students are involved, you're safer because you have so many more brains on the case. And I can tell you that if your obstetric provider is someone who is also being trusted with educating future doctors, that means they're really good. So it takes a lot to be able to do your job and also teach people. And so I think that residents and med students are really great to have around, but it's always up to you. I also think you need to think about the hospital you're delivering at. Again, I'm an OBGYN. I've seen all the things. So you better believe that I delivered at a hospital where there was a high level NICU. There were OBGYNs in-house all the time. There was an anesthesiologist and ORs nearby if I needed. I would never deliver at a hospital where the anesthesiologist was at home in their bed or my OBGYN was at home in their bed because I've seen what happens and I've seen that things go south really quickly. Not everybody is going to be like me and have those sorts of things in their head, but I do think it's important to just always be prepared. I think it's good to know the statistics of your provider, such as their C-section rate, how many of their patients breastfeed. Now, sometimes you can't always get that data from one 
provider, but you can ask for the data of the hospital. And data is not always perfect, but it can at least start the conversation. Because if your OBGYN has a C-section rate of 55% and the national average is 33%, then you might go, hmm, why is this person doing all these C-sections? Or if the breastfeeding rates of the hospitals are really good, is it because they've got a lot of lactation support? Or are they really low because there's no support whatsoever? So just good conversations to have. I think it's also really good to know who else is in the office to help you. Do they have lactation support in their office? Do they have ultrasound that they can do right in their office? Do they have or have a really good referral network to people like pelvic floor physical therapists if needed? And overall, like, what's the vibe? Like when you interact with this provider, do you feel like they listen, that you're seen, that you're heard, that you're not rushed, that they're not making fun of you because you're asking questions? Like I think the gut check matters a lot. And then lastly, are they board certified? So in order to become, I mean, you hear me, right? When I introduce myself or I have my byline on articles and stuff, like it's important for people to know that I'm a board certified OBGYN. It means that I trained in a residency, took written boards, took an oral board exam, which was really difficult. And every year I keep up that certification by something called maintenance of certification, where I have to do all these articles and get these questions right. And what it means is that I keep up to date. And I think that's important. And so if somebody's right out of residency, they're not board certified, they're board eligible, and I wouldn't run away from them. It just means that they haven't had the chance to sit for that exam yet. But if they're very experienced and they're not board certified, that's that's a potential you know, red flag. So things to think about and how to find a good one after you've gone through all of this. Ask around, ask your friends, ask your primary care doc who they go to or who their family members go to. My favorite tip is to call labor and delivery and ask the nurses who they would recommend because they see us in all the crazy shenanigans. They see us in the middle of the night. They see us during the emergencies. They know who they would go to. And they can tell you who they would recommend. I, I would say be wary of Google. Google reviews can, it's a hot mess. I mean, sometimes, especially during COVID, like somebody would talk about vaccines on social media and all these crazies would come out of the woodwork and drop a bunch of terrible fake reviews onto Google just to try to sabotage them because they didn't believe in vaccines. Like it's, unfortunately, social media and online reviews are not the best. So those are my, those are my top tips. Let's move on to your next question. How frequently should I be seeing my doctor? And this is actually a really good one. Follows up, which is, like you said, how frequently should I be seeing my doctor? So it's usually every four weeks until you're about 28 weeks, then every two weeks. So every other week until you were 36 weeks pregnant. And then it's usually every week until delivery, until you give birth. But that can vary, right? And especially after the COVID pandemic, we saw that some of these in-person visits could be virtual visits, which I think is really cool. Some people have group care where they do something called centering pregnancy, where they do group prenatal care. I think it's really cool. You get like this group of people who are pregnant about the same gestational age as you are, and you all get to meet together moving forward through the pregnancy. You've got like this built-in support network by the time you deliver. And I think that's super cool. And some people need more visits because you've got high-risk issues or you got to pop in because you've had things come up. So it can definitely vary. I would say that I get it. It can seem like there's a long time in between when you're being seen, especially in those first 28 weeks where you might only be seen once a month. Just know that just because you're not in the office doesn't mean you can't check in. Another thing that you can ask for your providers when you're considering is, do they have an electronic medical record? Because that can be a really easy way if you've got a question to drop in a question where you just shoot a message to your provider um, and you can check in if needed. So just the about, you know, the average, but it can definitely vary. Okay, this next question, I'm excited for this one. 
what are suggested supplements in addition to my prenatal vitamin regimen? Okay, so you hit the nail on the head that a prenatal vitamin matters and they're important. And I, I do just want to quickly review some top tips for prenatal vitamins here because really, like, that's the answer. Um, I want you to know that you don't need a prescription, that you can absolutely get the ones that are over the counter. You want to make sure that your prenatal vitamin has enough folic acid, iron, vitamins like vitamin A, B, D, choline, and more. I will put a reference into the show notes about specifics of what to look for and really you know, in these like normal prenatal vitamins, you know, they're all basically the same, these over-the-counter ones, as long as they've got these. And the best vitamin is really the one that has this and that you can tolerate. Because if you do have that nausea early in pregnancy, especially the idea of swallowing a pill, especially if it's got a weird odor or smell, can be really difficult. So it's really good to pick one that you can tolerate and you will take. And they've got ones that you can swallow. They've got gummies, you know, chews, all the things. So it's about figuring that out. And it's ideal to take it before you're trying to conceive because so much development happens even before you pee on that stick and you know you're pregnant, especially what we call the neural tube. So this is the tube that eventually becomes the spinal cord in the brain. Folic acid, super duper important to decrease birth defects to this particular area. And that formation happens so early. So ideally you're taking it a few months before you try to conceive. You do not need a designer or prenatal vitamin. You wanna make sure that they're USP certified, that they don't have any weird funky additives in it. In terms of other supplements that you might need, I mean, potentially some more vitamin D if you know you've got low numbers and potentially an omega supplement if you're not getting enough of that through your diet, like fish. There's so many crazy products out there. And really, it's about a good diet. And since we're in America and the vast majority of us don't have great diets, a good prenatal is important, but you don't have to go overboard with all this other stuff. Which brings me to this week's clitorally segment where I call out the things that make me go clitorally and literally, are you kidding me? And this week's is about the high-end prenatal vitamin market. So just to level set here, when I was pregnant, I took nature-made vitamins and this is not sponsored by them. I was like, what's got the stuff I need without any weird stuff? And like, what's the cheapest? And I went and did a price check today of what the nature made prenatal that I would take today if I was pregnant, I am not, on Amazon. And the cost, y'all, it was $60 for the entire pregnancy. So I went and I calculated what all of these vitamins would cost for an entire pregnancy. Keep that number in mind, $60 for nature made. Let's talk about some of these designer ones out there. So the one I feel like everybody has asked me about is these ritual vitamins. And of course, they've got a gorgeous website. The pills look really cute, blah, blah, blah. They've got stuff in them, whatever. They're probably fine to take if you want to drop $390 for through your pregnancy. Now, if that's something that makes you feel good, you feel like you're treating yourself, go for it. Is it going to cause harm? Probably not. But uh, but $390 and $60, like think of all the prenatal massages you can get if you save that money. But it gets worse. There's these ones called Parallel, Parallel. yeah, I think that's how you say it. It's made by OBGYNs, which of course people always go, my goodness, doctors made it, whatever. Um, what I can't stand about this brand is that they have a different type for every trimester. Like magically your needs have changed that much. So what they're doing is they're just capitalizing on the fact that they can make it seem like they're giving you something special. And if there was science behind it, I would be like, absolutely, you should do that. There's not. And it's a bunch of pills. It's like a handful of pills. <laughs> now you're making these poor pregnant people swallow not just one pill, but like a whole handful. And it's going to cost you $500 for the entire pregnancy. Yeah, right? Like, again, think how much money you could be saving. 
Let's talk about the worst. The absolute worst that I found was called Saqqara. This was seven pills per packet. Seven. For somebody who's like just trying to keep down their coffee or like a couple crackers. And the price, this is actually what's going to make you throw up. $1,150 for your pregnancy. You could go on vacation. You could you could buy a lot of stuff. And, you know, it could pay for a lot of therapy that you're going to need when you realize the money you just wasted on vitamins. And this website is like ridiculous. They've got all these insane detox programs. Um, nutrition programs, the bridal program. We're not even going to click on that because I cannot even handle it. A gut health reboot, blah, blah, blah. Water drops. What is a water drop? I don't even know. Wellness teas, super powders, effervescent powders. I guess so your urine can be effervescent because that's where it's all going to go. This is a big skip. So again, pick what you want. If you feel like the bougie vitamins make you get, you know, really excited and fancy, go for it. But your baby is going to come out just fine, whether or not you spend over a thousand dollars on your vitamins or 60. Clitorally, literally, no thank you. So to wrap this all up, early pregnancy is different for everybody. Some people may have symptoms, others don't. And for some, unfortunately, it's nausea, vomiting, morning sickness that yes, we already discussed, doesn't just exist in the morning. There's tons of myths out there and old wives' tales. Some are fun and some are just annoying. And like, don't ever comment on how somebody is carrying their baby, please. And thank you. That's the one thing you take away from here today. You get to announce your pregnancy whenever you want. Don't let other people tell you how long you should wait or, you know, what they think is best. And when it comes to finding the right obstetric provider for you, there's lots of different things you can consider. And also know it's okay to switch if you feel like something's not right or something's not off because this is your birth and you deserve to feel safe and comforted and supported. You'll see your doctor more frequently as you get closer to your delivery date, but know you can always check in sooner if you need to. Really, you just need a good prenatal vitamin. You don't need to take out a mortgage to take, you know, to take a really fancy vitamin. Super, super fun bunch of questions to ask. I hope that was helpful. And I will put references and resources in my show notes. And until next week, don't hesitate to send in more questions, especially related to pregnancy. I feel like we're just scratching the surface of that on this podcast. All right, everybody, stay safe out there. Bye-bye. Okay, it's that time where I ask you to rate, review, and follow on your favorite podcast app because we know that's how we get more people talking. So call in at 503-893-2016 and join me online at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. So let's keep the conversation going, my friends. Call in, leave a question, and know that it's okay to have questions about your body and we're gonna answer them.